Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Before you hear this episode's conversation, here's a little snippet of what has happened to me on my travels over the last week. Today's update comes very much from the road. I am in the small town of Feldbach in the south of Austria, making some good progress and hiding from the sun for a change. There are people around, cars passing, and so if there's background noise, that is why. This week, I really want to talk about some of the unexpected positives that can come from challenging or unwelcome situations. I'd had to wait around in Bratislava for a couple more days than I'd planned. I was waiting for some bike parts to come through and I was really ready to get back on the road and I'm sure Jakob was happy to see the back of me. A couple of days late, these parts arrive, I put them on and Jakob and I have lunch in a cafe before I head off apart from Jakob and as I do so there's a a group in the cafe and they say hey what's this Bristol to Beijing thing and I explain about bike ride they're a group of international teachers working at a local school and as I always do I ask well anyone who wants uh, you're very welcome to have a ride on the tandem to my surprise one of them said yeah sure can you just take me into the center and I was like yeah of course So Octavia and I cycle into the centre and it becomes clear that Octavia is quite a free spirit. Apparently has done more travelling during the lockdown period than basically at any other point, which just seemed bananas. I thought this could be the sort of person who wants to do more than just cycle into the centre. So I asked Octavia, oh, do you want to cycle a bit more? You know, I'm going south from here. And she's like, well, I'm meeting friends, but uh, after that, and I'm like, yeah, sure, no worries. I wait in the garden of the house where she's meeting friends, and I end up talking to some of the other people who live in that house. Now, one of them, Josef, is a professor of computer science and mathematics, and we got into a discussion about humour in education and how important it is for people to enjoy the learning process. We went further, and Josef told me about most humour relies on playing with language, playing with words, and that requires a very high degree of familiarity with language, which means if it's a second language or a third language, it's very difficult to get the humour. Anyway, Octavia decided to join on the tandem and we went south. We had this most beautiful evening cycle. There were oranges and reds and purples in the sky and the wind farms that we were cycling through became these sweeping silhouettes. It was just a very special night to be cycling. We got to Nusadel, which was where I was going to be dropping Octavia off. However, we'd gone to the wrong station, it turned out, and we were trying to find a train for Octavia to get back and she calls across the platform to this other lady saying well where do we go to get the train back to Bratislava and the woman says oh it's this other train station and then she says are you the Bristol to Beijing person and I'm like yes and she's like you've taken a long time to get here we last saw you just before Linz and she was absolutely right I met Sandra and her husband Martin in a small town Essach Alderdonau apologies for my pronunciation and now here we were by some fluke chance she was picking up her daughter from the station in Nusadol that night I stayed with Sandra and Martin and Anya and the next morning we went cycling round Nusadol am see the lake and just had the most fantastic day what I really want to take away from this experience is from this inconvenient event of the bike parts not arriving on time, it meant that firstly I met Octavia, we had an amazing cycle together, and then by this fluke chance again, Sandra happened to be at the station that we shouldn't have even been going to. Octavia happened to ask Sandra which station should we be at, and then Sandra saw this crazy dude on a pink tandem and was like, oh, there's probably only one of those guys. Are you the Bristol to Beijing person? It's one of those very beautiful and fitting times when life seems to come a full circle. It doesn't often happen, but it's one to appreciate when it does. 
And now it's time for this week's conversation. This week, I am having a conversation with Marvin Rees, who in 2016 was elected the mayor of Bristol, aged 44. Now, this was one step in a journey that has been far from easy, and I think we're going to be finding out exactly what the challenges were during this discussion. Marvin, you were born in 1972. You grew up in Lawrence Western and Eastern, which were some of the less wealthy areas of Bristol. And you've talked about before your mixed race identity giving you a particular set of experiences and angle and how you grew up, how you now view Bristol, how you now want to change Bristol, a British mother and a father from Jamaica. So I'm really interested to talk about the challenges throughout your childhood growing up in Bristol. You went to Swansea University, you got a master's in political theory, and then you went to the US, worked for Tear Fund and Sojourners, which is a organisation that sort of helps to tackle inner city poverty. You came back to Bristol, you worked for the NHS and then the BBC as, as a journalist and radio presenter. You got into politics and in 2012, you set up the City Leadership Programme, which trying to identify, invest and develop young leaders from more disadvantaged backgrounds in Bristol. And you were unsuccessful in getting the mayorship in 2012, but in 2016, you succeeded in something of a landslide. Um, there are so many issues I'm really excited to talk about. Mm. So Marvin, thank you so much for joining on the Facing Up podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm really intrigued. You grew up in Bristol at a very different time in a different era. I grew up in Bristol in a, in a different place. What were the challenges that you faced growing up in Bristol during the 1980s? So there's a whole mix of things uh, that I would define as challenges. Uh, one, we were poor to be put not to put a finer point on it the circumstances of my birth played themselves out in that sense Bristol was quite racially fractured not that it's not today but it, it, this was the era when we had the two rebellions in St Paul's and as a young person growing up um, we used to triangulate all the time about where was safe and where was not safe to be as black kids I know that there would be I remember at the time again, white kids too would be saying, "Oh, should I really go to St Paul's? Is it safe to go?" Someone actually dropped me off at home once in a car, and as I got out my got out of their car on Stapleton Road, they said to me, "Are you going to be okay? Are you sure?" I said, "It's fine. This is where I live." <laughs> so, wow. so people, uh, that sense of physical boundaries of Bristol was uh, very real. And then uh, I share a story quite often that I grew up living across those boundaries, so it was a usual thing. It, was not unusual to have people drive past and shout out racial slurs or to be chased down the street if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time on racial grounds. But I go home and my primary caring family's white. Um, right. And once on the way to school, one of my peers said to me, or one of my black friends said, so Mark, in a war between black and white, whose side are you going to be on? So for a, as a teenager looking for belonging and identity and trying to fit in, that was a huge question. Now, some people may say that's a silly question, you know, we're all one race, the human race and all that type of, you know, kind of blah analysis. But in Bristol in the 1980s, to a kid that was looking to belong, that was a, a huge challenge. Did you feel that you belonged in one part of the city or another? I did feel like I belonged in one part. I felt like I belonged in, in the inner city part because clearly my everyday experiences of Bristol was were those of a, a black kid mm. who didn't say, hey, I'm going to do some nuance with you here. I can see you have a white heritage family. <laughs> you know, okay. it was just the N-word or, you, you know, your coon or whatever. These were real. So I had a place that I felt physically safe. But that physical safety within Eastern St. Paul's, which are very mixed areas, by the way, it's just there were a lot of black and Asian people there. Mm. But that place of safety was also within the walls of my white family. Right. So I was living lots of things at the same time. And, I, and mm. I think within that, a challenge for me and for many of my peers growing up was where is the hope? So mm. we've got these things going on, but in the middle of all that, how are we going to build a life? Right? Mm. Where are we going to find the opportunity uh, that we want? Even if we didn't know how to articulate it, how to, mm. what are we going to be doing at 25, 30, 35 that gives us the lives that we would hope we would be able mm. to have? 
So one of the things that I've said you know, through the Bristol to Beijing cycle ride and something that's become very important to me is, and it's something of a mantra, proactively create your mm. own opportunities to live the most enriching and fulfilling life possible. And in this conversation at other points as well, I've realized I'm saying that from a position of immense privilege that I've had lots of opportunities and I'm like, oh, you know, just create your own opportunities. Yes, you have to work hard. But if someone was to tell you at the age of sort of 15 or, you know, in that setting, oh, just create your own opportunities, what would you have said? Well, I probably would have felt incredible amount of responsibility and inferiority because I would be able to see that they were the type of person that creates opportunity. I wouldn't have had the tools to be able to challenge the easy assumptions and the fact that, you know, that's a privilege. So the, the thing I say now, one of the one of the kind of real opening moments for me was when I did get to university. And I realized that the way some of the kids around me were talking, life was just one big opportunity. So you do create opportunity, right? Because you you don't, everything's an opportunity. Everything is great. Everything is, well, life is going to get better. Growing up, my whole life was defined as a struggle. My mum struggled every day. Every time I heard people talk about it, it was a struggle. It was a totally different perspective um, on the world. And that was remarkable. And I, I thought, how liberating is it to be in a world in which life is just a big opportunity as opposed to life just being something you have to survive mm. uh, every day? And I don't think, I, I, unless you step across that line, it's very hard to understand. And that's not some sense of inbuilt pessimism in the lives of people who've been on the underbelly it's just that if your earliest experience are insecurity in housing joblessness watching your I've crossed a line in many ways now I get treated differently by people but it's not long ago in this very well in my lifetime obviously in this very building I watched my mum absolutely disrespected and treated like dirt when she came to pay her rent here now you can't we are we are in part we become how people treat us let's not pretend that's why people invest mm. in mm. schools and in development programs mm. the way people treat you will in some sense help create your sense of who you are your potential mm. and and what you've got and people experience the world it can tell them every day that they're worthless and they are nothing they have no potential and that will play itself out in people's lives and, and also to create opportunity you've got some raw material Mm. There's a great line. It's not a great film, but there's a film called Get Hard. Okay. It's Will Ferrell mm -hmm. and um, Kevin Hart, I think it's in it. There was this great moment where Will Ferrell said, I built this company with my own sweat and tears. That and a $5 million loan for my dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You got some yeah. raw material for opportunity. Yeah. And some people haven't got any raw material. Mm. I get the number wrong. It wasn't $5 million, but you get the, we, you get the yeah. gist, right? <laughs> I think this will be something really interesting to just come back to later because there's this whole gulf probably in my, my lived experience, my understanding of, of Bristol, of, I guess, my life philosophy. And in terms of this, you know, oh, there are so many opportunities out there, which probably speaks more about my experience than actually the number of opportunities available to everyone. And I would be very interested to know how... As mayor, you're trying to bring further opportunities through. But if we just park that to one side right now, say just prior to starting at Swansea University, how did you, I suppose, view yourself? You were talking about if you're being told you're constantly you're worthless, you know, you don't have any opportunities. What can you take us back to that time? Because you have gone on to a place which many of your peers I expect mm. didn't end up so the, that messaging of your worthlessness is sometimes overt but it's more often very subtle right so it can be overt I mean I had a I remember having a teacher who used to tell us that every day essentially we weren't any good so I had um, some very smart friends in school and we were in the top class and I was in a school that was merging St. George School. And there were three lower schools and they were all merging. But each school had a very different demographic. So Rose Green was quite racially mixed, a lot of working class kids. Redfield was pretty working class kids, a lot of white kids from uh, Barton Hill. Mm -hmm. And then St. George's Park were what I saw as the posh kids, right? They paid for their school dinners, in other words. There were two schools, we had free school dinners. And we were merging. And Redfield and Rose Green merged first, leaving Park out, right? So the two working class, as it were. And we had an RE teacher 
I used to say to myself and my friend Tyrone, you wait till those kids come down from park. None of you are going to be in this top class. And the park kids tend to be more white too. If you, if you imagine that, like none of you are going to be in this top class. Not lifting up. It was all about putting us, it was overtly about putting us down. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subtle messages come through in kind of the imagery about who's in charge, who's a leader. And also some of the messages from government and, and just what we saw around us when you're just walking around an area and it looks like it's left behind. You know it's left behind. So the question is, had you overcome that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You need opportunities. So what, what, what do I look back at the, the things that were in my life, right? I did have some teachers who just believed in me. I had, I had this nagging sense from when I was a kid that I had more to me irrespective of what people said. Mm-hmm. I, I probably was quite blessed in some of the outside inputs to me. But, but certainly my first experience at school in Lawrence Western, I had a teacher, I just think she believed in me. I, I, so I had this nagging sense, right? And that would never leave me. I had teachers who believed in me. Uh, Mr. Jennings, Mr. Jenkins really took me aside and said, you can do something with yourself, Marvin. And um, even when all my behavior was disintegrating, mm-hmm. they believed that stayed mm-hmm. with me. I had a mum who loved me. My mum struggled, but I knew she did. And that matters a lot. We had a council house, so I had a stable home. I boxed. I started boxing. It was a mm. massive investment in my self-esteem. I got structure. I got discipline. Mm. You know, I didn't have to prove myself anymore. I got outside the city boundaries into the Brecon Beacons, looked at the stars, realised there was more to the world than Eastern and St. Paul's. Mm. And I, I had a faith too. I believe in, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in God. And, mm. and that gave me a sense of there is a bigger narrative out there that's much bigger than me. Mm. And there is a purpose to my life. I don't know what that is. And all those things come together to be a source of resilience for me. It sounds really interesting that those those three things you're talking about, you know, boxing, getting out of Bristol to the Brecon Beacons and your faith helped in different aspects of your life. The boxing with that sort of personal resilience and you know, development of, you know, uh, perhaps good habits. Uh, but then the Brecon Beacons kind of broadening your horizons and, you know, the, the faith in the Bible, presumably talking about just a much, much wider perspective than even the Brecon Beacons and what is out there in the faith, yeah. the faith element was was not specifically about the Bible. Mm-hmm. It was much more a sense of mystery uh-huh. and infinity and awe. C.S. Lewis talks about you know the, when we experience awe, fear, not fear of a tiger, but fear of the mysterious unknown type thing. You know, mm-hmm. and I I had that from when I was a child, and that I might say that called to me. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that I can't just spin my wheels in Easton mm. and St. Paul's. There is something bigger out there. And that drew me in. And do you think that was the key thing that, I guess, set you apart from some of your peers? I don't know. But I can see there are elements of those experiences that some of my peers uh, mm. didn't have. Getting out of the city boundaries was one mm. of those massively. So, mm. yeah. And again, when we... Th- Think about the injustice in our country. I got to university. You know, I wasn't the greatest rugby player, but I was all right. I was, I was quite quick, reasonably strong. Mm. And people say, you're fast, you know, pretty strong. And then I also just looking around, I expected to see people with oversized heads at university. I literally had this image that if you got to university, you had a big head because of the brains. But I got there and it wasn't like two months before I realised that no one in this university is inherently better than the friends I grew up with. Some of whom passed away now. Uh, some of whom went to prison, uh, very few, if any, went to university. And mm. there were people at your school who were bigger, fitter, faster, stronger, mm. more able, more confident uh, than me, who could have could have had a trajectory if they had the right inputs to do great things. Mm. And some of them never quite fulfilled their potential, which mm. is a real heartbreaker for me and a great cost and a loss to the country. Mm. I guess when I look back on my life, there were so many people always channeling me towards that university experience and that as a as a pinnacle. And it so it's it really sort of takes me outside of my experience and comfort zone to hear about. There are so many people where that is just simply not the case, mm. and they just don't know. You just don't know what to do with your life, mm. right? So the leadership program I founded in mm. two thousand twelve mm. was really inspired by my time at Yale, actually. Yeah. So I got to Yale University. 
for the World Fellows Program in yeah. 2010. They said to us, we, we've educated three of the last four presidents and we're going to educate another one. It's like, wow, what an ambition. What a statement. <laughs> yeah, both Bushes went to Yale. Yeah. The Clintons went to Yale. So if mm. Hillary Clinton had won, they'd have had four of the last five, the five presidents, right? Because yeah. been Obama would have been the break. Harvard. Yeah. And I looked at the CVs of all these uh, Yale alumni that were coming back to speak. I saw the way they were structured. There seemed to me something of a pattern to them. Mm-hmm. They do a degree, they do an MBA or, an, or a law or an MPA at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, they go and work for a while, they come back, they might do the PhD, then they go off and kind of go off on this trajectory and yeah. run the world at 29. And by the time I got to Yale, I was like, um, I'd only been there five months. By the time I finished, I was like, man, I can go anywhere. I thought, and it just struck me just the importance of the environment that you are in and what that does to propel you in your sense of self and what, what doors you can knock on mm-hmm. and what doors you can you, you can't knock on. Whose door would I knock on as a uh, you know a mixed race sixteen year old with no confidence, no, no connections to any? What door would I go and say, hey, can I come and experience what it means to the book in your law firm or uh, you know in management accountancy? Or, I, mean, I had none of that raw material. First opportunity I knew there was for me was to join the Marines. Right. That was the thing that really captured my imagination as a as a fifteen year old really. Mm. I just want to return to this idea of you you being at Yale and after your time there thinking I can go anywhere and you're talking about the importance of environment. To what extent did you actually you know, learn skills or develop skills at Yale which then enabled you to do this? Or to what extent was it just the self belief and you're surrounded by people who are just like well, I'm going to change the world. And you're like, hey, but you're no better than me. So like, I can do the same. I think Yale was much about self-belief. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about skills. I said to my wife quite often, and, and the, the students that come with, that come on a city leadership program, mm. there are a lot of people out there who do a lot more with a lot less. Mm. Right? Um, and, and it comes down to what I'm talking about earlier on, but you mentioned, it's a, some science, it's attitude. Mm. There's a guy in Bristol called Clayton Planter. He runs a program called Street to Boardroom. Mm-hmm. Right? This is about guys who've been hustling on the street, recognizing those skills as business skills and then applying them to, to business. Now you think about what it takes to put an organization together to make money, a legal activity. You've got to find your product, find your market. Yeah. You've got no formal structure. You've got to keep your organization in line. So you have to have leadership skills and you have to make people money. These are incredible skills. Right? Yeah. These are alpha and I don't mean that in a kind of a my kiss, you know, domineering way that it can be. Mm. But these are alpha characters. I was in the I was in the US um, a few years. I, I met my my brother in law's cousin, who's mm. been to prison and all that. And my brother in law said, wherever that guy ends up, he's in charge. <laughs> he's charming, right? If he's on, if he's in life, he's on the mercury. He's in charge. He ends up in charge. When he goes to prison, he's in charge. He's just a leader. Yeah. The fact is, but he's on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> what would happen if you put him in some management consulting firm, right? He yeah. would be in charge because that's the way he would. He's, he's, mm. tra- he's not domineering. Mm. He's just smart, charismatic, and a mm. you know nice guy in inverted commas. Cause <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's a lot of talent and ability like that. Like mm. I said about my, my school friends, phenomenal ability and talent. That sounds like a super pro. I really would love to meet Clayton. I'm quite interested in you talking about leadership skills. You're now in this position of um, you know, authority and responsibility. What do you make as a good leader? So I, I was really taken by the phrase, the servant leadership, years ago. When I was actually in Philadelphia, I read a book. I think it's Robert Greenleaf, The Power of Servant Leadership. And um, he tells a story of um, a manager, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong. But I won't were, hold you to it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> But as a company with 12 top executives mm-hmm. and they did the analysis and they found that four of those 12 top executives had had their formative career experiences under the leadership of one of kind of 900 middle managers. Mm-hmm. So he says, so who had the biggest impact on the company? They did the work and he said, actually, it wasn't an accident. What this middle manager did was intentional and they created opportunities for development, created opportunities for failure, growth mm-hmm. and so forth. For people underneath him or for him? Yeah, yeah for people who come in under yeah. under his charge. Yeah. And so there's something that that person did that meant that the people mm. in his charge mm. went on phenomenal trajectories, mm. did it on purpose, the environment. So how do you create the conditions for people around you to become great leaders? That's what leaders do. 
I also have a really formative experience. I mentioned the Marines earlier on. So yes. I got a bad eyesight. So I got something called keratoconus. I always say that because I had, again, one of the big inputs to me was I had the opportunity to go to Limpston mm-hmm. and to go down to Portsmouth. I took the potential officers course in AIB and I passed them mm-hmm. and then was told I couldn't go any further because of my eyes. Oh. Was that quite unusual to go down to Limpston and... Oh, yeah. This was 1990, right? So I would have been the first British-born Black Royal Marine officer at the time. That's what I was being told. Wow. There okay. were Black Royal Marine officers, but they'd come from other forces. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. they weren't born in the UK. So um, it was an amazing moment of realisation for me that I could go and do something that was so incredible and pass it. Mm. But so if they kind of like you, they start sending you away. So they sent me up to a place called Mokokin. It was this outdoor activity centre with all these wannabe naval officers and wannabe Royal Marine officers. Right. And this Royal Marine officer, who was very well known at the time, he was on the front cover of the recruiting magazine. So I think he'd led the most decorated troop in the Falklands or something like that. Yeah. He said, we'd come back after some exercise one day and we'd all been trying to show off how fit we were. And he said, you guys, you will think being a great Royal Marine officer is about carrying 100 pound packs up mountains. So there's an element of that that's true. But the best Royal Marine officer will find the best shot and give them the rifle. The best map reader and give them the map. And the fittest guy and give them the heaviest Bergen. And then what they'll do is they'll get by on four hours sleep so their guys can have six hours sleep. And obviously I never forgot that, right? It's not about trying to do everything. It's not about I'm leader so I'm going to shoot. I'm leader so I'm going to read the map. It's about allocating tasks properly. And what I need to do is give you the map and then create the conditions in which you can be the best you can be at what you do Mm. best, right? And then... Again, what do you do? You sacrifice. You take four hours sleep so everyone else can have more than you. And again, I never forget these principles. I don't live them perfectly, but you know that's what I hope I aspire to do. Yeah, there's a lot of humility wrapped up in that. But then I guess also that self-security that you don't need to show off and show that you know, as a leader, oh, I'm also the best shot and the best map reader. Look at me, look at me. It's actually sort of saying wanting to see others succeed that's, and thrive. That is a massive point, actually that I reflect on a lot because I'm constantly surrounded by people who are a lot smarter than me. They're better than me. I can't go into a housing meeting when housing officers, they know more than me about all the numbers, children's services, um, city planning, finance. I'm constantly in this room with people who are smarter than me. No more than you, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no more than you. So my question in, and that is, well, what am I offering here? Mm. And I guess one of the things a leader must be able to offer you must be the kind of person that really smart people want to be around <laughs> okay right how do you uh, do that <laughs> i'm taking well, notes right you, now <laughs> i suppose they i suppose they would want to be around you because they believe in your ultimate goal and they believe you care about them and you and they will believe that you want the best for them and that you want them to to flourish and in that sense you have to have enough security in of yourself to be okay with having people around you who are smarter than you and to be okay with saying, you know, I want you to flourish. Mm. I said to our cabinet when I very first started, in many ways, it's like there's this piece in game theory, isn't it? Where if we all enter into a room and we all give, it's like the prisoner's dilemma, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right Now, if I look out for you and you look out for me, mm. you know, we all win. Yeah. Right. If I start looking out for me and you start looking out for you, we could all lose. Mm. If I look out for me and you don't look out for me, then I might win big, but you lose. You yeah. know. But if we're all trying to give each other glory, right, and create the conditions for each other to receive some glory and profile, then we can turn our backs in confidence. I'm absolutely free then to push glory onto you mm. and that everyone wins. I'm butchering that story totally, but you get my yeah. sense, right? It's interesting because the tied up in this is this... This question of do we see other people's success as a threat to our own, I suppose. Mm. And when we do, there'll be an environment and a culture of trying to squash other people and succeed yourself. Whereas if you can be secure enough in what you're doing, you know, if you're working towards a common goal, then it doesn't matter if someone else is doing better than you to get to that goal because you're getting towards that goal. I'm wondering if we can sort of take this into how you're trying to change Bristol, Right. Because in theory, if I'm sure you're trying to make Bristol a better place and yet it can perhaps, I don't know, from your perspective, feel that some people feel threatened, uh, some people are insecure in their position. So how do you navigate this incredibly complex interpersonal dynamics? And all you're trying to do is make this city Hmm. the best it can possibly be. Yeah, 
It's an interesting experience because, like, there's a painting of a man, so I don't want to genderize it, but I think it is a man, in the middle of a storm and, the st- like, the winds and so forth are swirling around him. Mm. And I've been thinking about that a lot recently because I've been on holiday. <laughs> I was away for two and a half weeks. I was doing stuff when I was there, but I was, mm. I was at the city. You're allowed to relax as well. Thank it's you cool. very much. <laughs> you can admit to being on holiday. And... We've been trying to do the same thing. You know, Bristol's a phenomenal city, great aspiration, new home channel for two world-class universities, but 25% of the kids are living in poverty, right? So our commitment to social and environmental justice is exactly the same. We're just trying to work out how we deliver it. So anyway, that hasn't changed. I'm on holiday and I can see these things kicking off in the press. Like I've said nothing. I've not been involved in these. Conspiracy over here. I'm colluding with some group over there. Like, I don't even know what they're talking about. And there's an element in which you're the leader in the middle of this storm that is the world. You know, it's, it's local policy, it's national policy, it's international policy, mm. it's uncontrolled global trends, mm. climate, migration, and so forth. And you're just looking at this mad swirl around you. Mm. And I'm thinking, where the heck is that coming from? I was reflecting on this too. There's an element of that noise that that is around you as a political leader that's got nothing to do with politics. It's the noise feeding the noise, Mm. you know, and it's not all the same noise. So it's noise that hates each other. Right-wing noise, left-wing noise, talking to each other, but portraying itself as politics and pulling you into it. Mm -hmm. It's like football hooliganism, you know? The opposition factions are shouting and fighting each other it got nothing to do with the game on the pitch. <laughs> right, right. right. It's all tied up with football. And some of the political noise has got nothing to do with actually re- the real political questions and policies that we're trying to do. It's just the noise shouting at the noise yeah. around us. So I think my experience in the middle of that has been something you couldn't know if you weren't in the middle of it. And, and then stopping sometimes, to, like I said, I've had a few weeks off to stop you know, and reflect on my place in it. But navigating it is just being, look, we're going to try and get done what we want to get done. Mm. You have to remain focused, right? Mm. You can't take on a thousand and one priorities. Mm. Affordable homes, mm-hmm. child poverty, mm-hmm. economic inclusion, sustainable development, mm-hmm. delivering on our major major infrastructure mm. projects, which are housing, but also mass transit. And that's what we're trying to get done. Mm. At the end of the time, you say to people, this is what we're about. That's the noise. I can't account for the noise. Mm. But if you want to talk to me, this is what we try to do. Mm. And then your job is to say, were they the right priorities? Did you do everything you could to deliver them? Mm. If you didn't manage to deliver everything you said, is that reasonable? Mm. And then make a judgment. Yeah. And, and and you find peace in not getting tied up and chasing your tail and trying to prove all this. You, you can only find peace in saying, I'm going to stick to what we're trying to do mm. um, and have an honest conversation with people. Mm. So you've got your own priorities for Bristol, very clear, very focused and... That allows you, in a sense, to ignore a lot of this background noise that's going on and it's a constant game of ping pong from different sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, so someone even said to me yesterday, there's a kind of the line, the kind of easy line, well, what have you done? I said, well, where do you go to get your information? Mm, <laughs> right. He said, well, where do I go? I said, I said, I got my phone out. I clicked my phone. I put three words in there. Marvin Rees blog. <laughs> I said, it's all, I said, let's have a look. <laughs> and we scanned through, it's got loads of stories in there about stuff we've done. I said, look, if you don't actually put some effort into it, yeah. you're not going to find out. I can't come around and knock your door at night and give you an account of everything we've done. Yeah. But so the noise like, well, what's he done? He's done nothing in mm. a few years. I said, mm. well, I can't account for that. You know, mm. you, it does. You have to find some security in staying committed and staying focused. You also, which is kind of going to be maybe a dangerous thing to say, you have to find security in not waking up every day thinking, how am I going to get re-elected? Mm. Right? And I've said this from the beginning. Mm. Because if you spend every day thinking, how am I going to get re-elected? That would be like running around saying, how can I make everyone like me? And then exactly. you would be a weak person, yeah. blown around by whatever wind, chasing yeah. after headlines, chasing after social media. Mm. You, one is you get nothing done. Mm. Two, there'd be no substance to you. Yeah. So you have to just say, do you know what? put your flag in the ground this is what we're trying to get done this is what we're about this is what we're going to do to try and do it if you got to now make up your mind whether you like me or not and if you don't that's your bag you take your chances with someone else is that difficult yeah and to what extent do you check 
you know, Twitter feed and you know, the social media that's you know, related to you know, the mayor's office and stuff. Because when I was starting the ride, the cycle ride from Bristol to Beijing, and I was like, I'm not going to be paying any attention to social media. I'm just going to post what I'm going to post, and that's fine. Mm. And I just found it was bizarre. But like after a period of a couple of months, I started caring about like the number of likes, and I was like. This wasn't meant to happen at all. Like I'm just doing my thing, and now I'm. Oh, but that post got more likes. Maybe I should do more yeah. of that. And oh, let me just get my phone out and record this. So how's that been for you? I wouldn't say it's difficult, but I would say it's not easy mm-hmm. because we're all easily seduced by this. It's really important that we all realize our own weaknesses. Your point about likes is a really interesting one. My my friend um, is a GP, uh, Susie Davis. She started up a charity called Papaya, which is about mm-hmm. phone addiction in young people. Mm. And one of the things that she says is that. What used to be the basis of us developing that sense of self and resilience mm. in our human re- interactions mm. has been replaced by social media likes and reposts. Mm. It's a total artificial, what do you call it, buttress, or whatever, to, to hold us up. Mm. And that's one of the things that's leaving young people such low levels of resilience and, and mm. a source of such poor mental health mm. because we are seduced by that. I'm seduced by that. Mm. You know, you get a good story, you're like, oh, everyone liked that one. What look at all that? They're reposting. Yeah. But I suppose I've been through enough in life to say, oh, hold on. I know where this is going. This is not normal. Yeah. Stay away. So I haven't been on Twitter for probably about four weeks now. Yeah. And I'm staying away from it. And we all do it. You know, we post and we use it to, to send out information, but it's not healthy to interact with it. So it, it's very seductive. Mm. It's almost like Pilgrim's Progress here, if you know the book. You know, these things call to you like siren songs, right? From the right. rocks. Yeah. And you thought, oh, that sounds so beautiful. Look, everyone's liking me over there. Mm. And you pull over it before you know it, you're on the rocks. Mm. So it's a very dangerous place to go. I think personally, I also find strength in the face of that just because of what I've been through in my life. Mm-hmm. There's a proverb I use quite a bit. And it's about Bristol being a city of hope, which I really like this. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't despise our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character hope. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like hope rather than optimism because that sense of hope mm-hmm. grapples with the reality that life actually has suffering in it mm-hmm. and injustice. Mm-hmm. And I, if I can put in your the resource and skills to be able to overcome that suffering, mm-hmm. you will discover the ability to, to have resilience. Mm-hmm. And when you've got the ability to have resilience I know your bit of your stories I've read yours you've shown that resilience that resilience would be the basis of character Mm -hmm. once you've got character no one could take that away from you Mm -hmm. further injustice shouting I hate you negative social media Mm -hmm. you know someone said to me what's it like being there you've got these people attacking you so I've got this toothless non-political silly party conversation in the city I said I, someone threatened to stab me when I was a kid. You, you think that bothers me? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like, yeah I was going to I've ask. got some, you know... Puts it into perspective, doesn't it? Older, time-serving, you know, counsellor saying he doesn't like me and I'm this, that and ever. I'm a mm. dictator and this, that mm. and that. You think that bothers me? Mm. After what I've seen, what I've been through? Yeah. No, it doesn't. Now, that's not an arrogance. That's, that's a kind of a sense of I know who I am mm. because of all the attempts mm. to tell me who I am in the past. Mm. And you'd have experienced that. Lots of people have experienced that. There's a peace within that, that actually going back to that picture, in the middle of all those swirling Mm. winds, you can just stand there and look at them and say, well, I prefer the storm not to be there. Yes. It's not going to blow me over. To me, this is like, I guess, the other side of this. There are so many things in life that perhaps I would rather didn't happen to me and that didn't happen to other people in society. But the fact of life is that they do happen and it's really about how we choose to respond to them and yet part of me is very unsympathetic in saying you know like you should just if you let circumstances drag you down then you're the person losing out but that's quite unsympathetic particularly when I guess I've had a lot of resources to be able to cope with these things and I'm just sort of fascinated on what your take on that is when you when you don't have so many resources like I had my my family my parents you know my girlfriend at the time my friends all supporting me through a very difficult time Mm. but if I didn't have that Maybe I'd have got dragged down. Well, I think for me, the key in that, I I recognise that because I can be unsympathetic on that front too. Mm. So one of my kind of icons, I suppose, Malcolm X. Malcolm X was ferocious about the racism that dragged down the lives and and robbed African-Americans of hope. Mm. But he was also ferocious towards African-Americans, right? Mm. 
I'm going to talk about racism here, but I'm also going to talk about you and your attitude and what you do. Do you read books? Right. <laughs> Have you done on self-improvement? Do you take care of your children? Right. Yeah. And, you, and it's both at the same time. There, yeah. there is a, what I got in boxing was a very hard love, right? You know, they, they love me, but it was done with swearing and pushing and all that. Right. <laughs> so that's important. And that movement from, like I say, take that proverb, right? We don't despise our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance. Mm. Perseverance, character, character, hope. The movement from suffering to perseverance mm. does not happen automatically. We need to help people move from suffering to perseverance, right? And that takes some initial resource and some initial investment. Mm. If we don't make those investments, suffering produces destruction, mm. right? So it's not an automatic pathway. And that's, mm. I suppose, that's been my business when I'm thinking about poverty and the city leadership program. Yeah. I said to the young people on there, some of them had been homeless, uh, refugees, they come from very poor backgrounds. And I said, if you can, the very same thing that you said, actually, many of them are going through things that they wish they wouldn't go through, like I did, right? Mm. And that's absolutely normal. And I can't take away those negative experiences mm. from you. But I said, but if you can overcome those experiences in years to come, they'll be your source of strength and power. Yeah. And I said, for me, I shouldn't be mayor of Bristol. By any data, you know, I don't mean morally. I mean, look at my background, right? I grew up poor, I lived in a refuge. There's some domestic violence. First in my family to go to university. I, sh I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be sitting in the United Nations building when I was at the UN. You know, I shouldn't be addressing the US Conference of Mayors. I shouldn't be walking into Downing Street. That's, that's not my background. But, but I said, and, and I felt like an absolute fraud. Like I felt like a um, stepped into a world that wasn't mine and everyone mm -hmm. knew it. Mm. but I've got to a point I kind of experienced it with the army and the marines when I used to run around with them that actually what school did you go to how much was your education and I'm sitting at the same table as you so pound for pound skill for skill right who's gone the furthest right so yeah, who's, who's actually and I said to those young people you will feel like an outsider mm. but you've got to take a step and look at yourself and say I'm at the same table as this person and I've I started Way back. 100 meters behind the start line when mm. they were on the start line. Mm. And if you can capture that, mm. it would be a sense of strength for you, right? Yeah. I, I think I've captured some of that in my life mm. um, and I want other people to be able to capture it too. I'm wondering, you, your background not only you know, was full of challenges, but also gave you this intimate knowledge and understanding of Bristol. To what extent has that informed the changes that you're trying to drive and bring about here to what extent have those challenges then yielded this opportunity to identify and work towards problems with a vigor and passion that not everyone would have i'd say i i hope what i do is hold together ambition but with that drive for justice mm. and fairness so I had ambition as a kid. I didn't know what that ambition was, mm. but I knew I had ambition, right? I wanted to be part of a bigger story. I wanted to yeah. do something. I wanted to make the world fairer. So I'm, I'm, never, I'm never embarrassed about being ambitious for Bristol. Mm. Hence, we bid for Channel 4, who would have given us a chance. I had people say, why, why even bother? Yeah. Right? And then we went Channel 4. It's because we're ambitious for the city. We're, trying, we're going for the redevelopment of the Temple Meads train station. We've never had that. We're going for an underground in the city, you know. For, if, you know news to me. What about uh, the bike lanes? That's what I want to know. Bike lanes are going in all over the city. <laughs> but again, look at how you, you deliver it. You know, we've got to get things in the right order, the mm -hmm. right sequence. Again, if we can deliver a meaningful mass transit system, like an underground, mm -hmm. there will be fewer cars on the roads. There will be more road space for, for bikes, just generally as well. Mm -hmm. But what I've done is I've held together ambition, and we've been ferociously ambitious. Mm -hmm. But it has to be the right kind of ambition. Mm -hmm. It's not let's do great things and then, oh, how can we do some diversity and some inclusion around that? It's how do we, how do we unlock a form of economic development that by its nature mm. tackles inequality, mm. that releases talent, that drives social mobility? That is clearly from my background. And then I am, I suppose I, I'm an international person. My family are all over the world. Um, so environmental justice is key to me and I've shared many times. You know, I don't look like an environmentalist. I... I don't have a high-vis jacket, <laughs> don't wear trouser clips on my corduroys. But I know that the consequences of environmental destruction hit poor people and brown people first and hardest. Mm. We're looking at 200 climate-driven migrants by the middle of the century mm. unless we get on top of climate change. Mm. So 
making sure that Bristol does the business of being ambitious, being just within its boundaries, mm. but is also a good global citizen city. Working with other cities around the world is really important to me. Mm. And again, part of my offer is not navel gazing. You know, I've had a lot of right wing stuff recently because we put an appeal out for people to take in uh, asylum seekers mm. um, in their homes. We want to be an open city, city of sanctuary. And I was reflecting on that the other day and people said, well, you're mayor of Bristol. You should just do Bristol stuff. I said, I again, goes back. Listen, this is my offer. I am not a navel gazing mayor. I think mm. Bristol should be a positive force in the country and we should be a giving city to the world. Mm. That does not take away from my drive to feed hungry children, to clothe them, to deliver affordable homes for Bristolians. But if you want someone who's just going to do Bristol, you have to go for someone else. I, right. To me, this you know, morality does not have a border, mm. uh, our moral commitment and our sense mm. of purpose. I would certainly agree with this, that you know, if you aspire to be more and you aim higher and not simply just to focus on Bristol, but you have a much wider and broader focus, I don't think that's ever going to have a negative impact on Bristol itself. I think that's only ever going to enhance the change that happens in Bristol. You're very ambitious, you probably, you know, and you say you're ambitious, you know, ferociously ambitious in terms of, you know, you know, trying to uh, reduce inequality and poverty, but still be sustainable and environmentally friendly. There are very, very few cities that are achieving this. You're making the task that much more complicated. Do you hope to be like a blueprint? Is it is this even achievable? Is this at this point pie in the sky dreaming? I'm being provocative here, but um, I think it's really, really difficult. I was talking to someone last night and, I, you know, I do struggle to hold on to hope that we're going to make the change that's, that's required mm -hmm. to keep us from catastrophic climate change. But what are we doing? So, so there's a broader piece on this. I think cities are the future on this. I think one of the problems we have is the model of governance we have, which is national governments working with national governments. Mm -hmm. It's just a busted model. You know, it might have been all right in the 1950s, but now we need much more power to be put in the hands of cities. We need predictable finance. Mm. If you gave, if we had a, and we're doing this work now, mm. we're trying to find out if we had a financial vehicle that put billions of pounds of investment in the city for the next 10, 15 years, we'd rebuild the city, right? Decarbonize our transport system, mm. decarbonize energy, decarbonize housing. We cannot solve climate with a project here and a project there, right? right? Which is basically what cities are left to do, particularly mm. in the UK where, where power and money is so centralized in government. Mm. National government bureaucracy cannot offer us that 10-year financial horizon that allow us to rebuild the city you know it just doesn't work like that we're really hamstrung in what we can do mm. so we can eke a little bit hat in here but it doesn't allow us to give that broader narrative but if cities had that finance i guarantee you'd see cities around the world rebuilding and with most people living in cities and being the biggest generators of of carbon that would be the transformative uh, piece mayors would renew their housing stock you know, they'd renew their transport um, systems. As I said, they decarbonize their energy systems and that would have a massive impact on, on the planet. Unfortunately, cities have to work through the mediums of their national governments. Mm. But one of the challenges I've, I've given through the C40 and to some of the big funders is all those big investors, the Warren Buffetts, you know, mm. the people like even like Bill Gates and so forth, who want the world to be different. Yeah. Start coming up with the vehicles that will, will bring some all that money that's out mm. there directly into the hands of cities and work cooperatively with the global network of mayors. Mm -hmm. And I promise you there would be a change because the cities are, are trying to deliver that mm. on the front end of, of the causes and the consequences of climate change. And I guess if you're working with the mayors, there's a much greater level of accountability and commitment to that particular locality. You're very, very much invested in Bristol. It's, it's place-based leadership. Mm -hmm. Robin Hambleton who's a professor at University of Bristol has written a book on leading an inclusive city does all sorts of stuff on city leadership mm -hmm. but Robin talks about placeless leadership mm -hmm. you know political leaders who kind of hover above geographical areas but don't really have a home and that happens mm -hmm. with our national political leadership mm -hmm. doesn't really doesn't really have anywhere to land so I'm a real believer in, in moving global governance into its next iteration mm -hmm. and that's the leaders of cities and networks of cities mm -hmm. Uh, shaping national and international policy mm. alongside national uh, governance. Mm. I'm really interested in, you grew up in Bristol, you know, and at that point you, very few people knew of Marvin Rees. You could grow up, you could make mistakes, you were, you know, anonymous. Your relationship with Bristol, your presence in Bristol has changed very, very significantly mm. since, since you were born here. Um, now, 
everything that you do is is scrutinized and mistakes or perceived mistakes are flayed in in the press and you're a recognizable figure how has your relationship with your home changed it has and it hasn't um i think one of the mistakes or one of the common senses that people have is that as a politician you are just like this individual politician living uh, but I've I've got seven brothers and sisters. You know, my mum still lives in the same house we moved to in nineteen seventy eight. You know, my, <laughs> I've got nephews and nieces. I you know I I don't just experience through Bristol through my experiences of being the mayor. Mm. Everyone's still living. Got their you know. There's a bill come in. I got a parking fine. I'm trying to buy a house. Where am I going to send the kids to school? Do Even the family? mayor gets a parking fine. Yeah, do we have a family? Yeah, yeah, we do. And do we have a family get together? You know, and where are we going to buy food? You know, when we mm. go shopping still live life mm. you know you don't cease that and i don't walk around every day thinking oh i'm the mayor of bristol <laughs> just thinking i need something to eat have we got milk mm. <laughs> what's the kid's school report like you mm. know did they get to club on time mm. it's still up. so life is still the same but clearly one of the one of the most interesting experiences being recognized but i'm in this kind of odd love like when i see people looking i'm thinking now, are they looking at me or are they not looking at me? So when they look at me, if I don't look at them and they're going to go home and say, I saw the mayor today, how rude, he didn't look at me. Or if I look at them and they're going to say, some black guy looks at me and stared today, I don't know who he was, but on stage, <laughs> you know, I don't know, <laughs> so I'm in this kind of state of imbalance. So yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. On the point of mistakes though you make, I again, that's something you have to find peace with, right? And sports helps with that. Uh, Clive Woodward said winning doesn't happen in a straight line mm. mistakes happen mm. you know I I just have to give it up some some days we're going to go on the pitch we'll leave everything on the pitch mm. and we won't succeed mm. I love this I got this on the wall from uh, Teddy Roosevelt it's called the man in the arena it is gendered so I, I apologise for that but I suppose Teddy Roosevelt was a person of his time uh, and I love this the man in the arena. Mm. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the very best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And there are, there are cold and timid souls over there who know neither victory nor defeat, mm. uh, but who stand on the touchline criticising. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it's that truism, it's that cliche that when you live it, it feels very different of like, I'm about to restart this cycle ride and I will have restarted by the time you're listening to this. And it could fail in the sense of like, I might not be able to get to Beijing yeah. because of everything that's happening because of COVID. But like, I am damn sure that I'm going to like restart and give it the best shot that I can yeah. rather than just saying, well, it's too difficult. And I think failure is so much our perspective mm. on what happens. And that's that ability is a liberation. The ability to to do something, even if you might fail, and to overcome failure is one of the most liberating moments you can get to in life. My darkest years in my teens were spent paralysed by a fear of failure. We go back to the beginning here. I didn't mm. have resources in my life. I didn't mm. know how to put life together. Mm. My school reports used to say, Marvin, you have great ability, uh, but you don't do any work. So your grades aren't good, mm. essentially. And I used to, I took great satisfaction in those reports. Mm. But the satisfaction was only in light of the fear. And my fear was, so what if I did try hard and they found out I'm not as smart as they think I am? That uh, paralyzed me. So yeah. I consciously self-sabotaged, consciously did no work. So at my GCSEs, I got five C's and a D and I wasn't allowed to go to computer studies and chemistry. They actually said, don't come back to chemistry and computer studies. Right. Right. Because I just did no work. Mm. My chemistry teacher was a good teacher, uh, Miss Doddleston. She was a good teacher, 
She said, it's Marvin, you can do chemistry. You're, you're good at chemistry. But I actively did nothing because I didn't want her to say, oh, I made a mistake. And, yeah. and the moment I said, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. Mm. Even if they find out I'm a fraud, I'm going to mm. give it a go. That's when I was liberated to actually then try things like go for Marines, go for Army, mm. go for university, try to do my A-levels. Mm. And those lessons have then built themselves up through my mm. life. Even if you might fail, give it a go. Yeah. I think that's it's such an interesting point that of like not necessarily wanting to embrace who you are, like, you know, and being afraid of that. And then so I'm thinking, you know, like I always wished I was like better at maths, but at some point you just got to like own it and just say, well, this is how good I am at maths. And like everyone's got to accept it. And rather than kind of always having this kind of facade of like, oh, you know, I'm I'm really I'm really good at this. And, you know, and but constantly being afraid to sort of being caught out and just saying, actually, this, this is me. And I'm working from this point. And if you don't like me or you don't like my mathematical abilities or like, well, then this is probably isn't the right job for me. Or, you know, then we're probably just not going to be friends. And actually coming, being at peace with that, that's been enormously empowering for me of being actually like, well, if I just accept I am who I am and then the people who don't want that, well, I probably didn't want to be friends with them anyway. Or I didn't want to be in that company anyway. That's been a really interesting insight to come to from my own side. It's a very powerful place to become. But I'd say too, to, to get to that takes resource. Mm. You have to know you have options. This is right? true. I can uh, go somewhere if, else, yeah, a different if, company, different friends. Yeah. If you don't have options, that might be the only place you can go. Like, mm. I've got a job. I've got a boss who hates me. I could say, well, it's not the right place for me. But actually, if you've got no options, you have to go to that job. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. again, it, it, um, my hope is w- within the city, we can do enough that gives people mm. options mm. Uh, so that they can act with that sense of self and, the, and, and in that sense of existence mm. and agency. If you were, you know, 18 right now, living, having grown up in Bristol, what do you feel the most effective avenue for change or development or what opportunities would you go for you know we we have been going through a very sort of tumultuous period over the last few months there's been a lot of anger a lot of desire to change some of this related to the black lives matter some of this related to systemic inequality that goes well beyond any ethnic categorization if, if you were 18 right now what would you be doing as in 18 in 2020 in yeah yeah if I was 18 now, I, I hope I'd have the same attitude as focusing on investing in, in myself mm-hmm. as a, I'd be doing my A-levels um, and trying to get to university. I've just always thought that was the, the pathway. Once you've got a few books in your head and some qualifications, no one can take it away from you. Mm-hmm. There's a man called Lumumba Diaping. He was at Yale. Mm-hmm. He's a, a, an amazing guy from Southern Sudan. And he said to me, Marvin, go to Harvard when I was at Yale. I said, oh, Lumumba, I ain't got no go to Harvard. But he said, just get it on the ticket. And this is a bit of wisdom for me. Mm. Just get that name on your in your bank. Right. He said, once you've got Yale, once you've got Harvard on your on your mm. ticket, you go anywhere. It opens doors, creates opportunity. Yeah. So as an African leader, uh, he was mm. trying to get people to, to take that seriously. So I would hope I'd be building those opportunities mm-hmm. up. Yeah. And so in a slightly different sense, for, for those across Bristol who are 18 today, what would your advice be to them or like you know if they want to affect positive change in their lives and the lives of others what's the next step university or, or the other things well there? i think university is um, if, well, it's not the only thing mm-hmm. it certainly is not guaranteed success and not going to university is not guaranteed failure i do err towards recommending people go to university if they can uh, make that happen well, I, I think one of the most important things you can do, and it takes help to do this, is to have a think about where you want to be at 30 and where you, what you want to be saying about yourself at 40. It's a really hard thing to do. But on the City Leadership Programme, we used to get our young people to do that. Mm. Step into that uncomfortable space. Um, is it's, it's, it's easier to get somewhere if you knew you wanted to get there. And bearing in mind that whatever you say about yourself today, you can change it next year. But a friend of mine who's in the army says, make a plan, any plan, just make a bloody plan. <laughs> uh, You'll get somewhere. Yeah, and, and I've got a plan. I'm going to change it now because you've got this raw material you can begin to, to, to move about. So I would mm. say, take some time away from friends, away from individuals, 
yourself to think about what you want to be. And this is not like what you want to just be. I want to be an accountant. I want to be this. There's an element of that. But who do you want to be? What do you want to be saying about yourself? Mm. And then you can come back to trusted people and have a conversation about that. Mm. Some older people who've lived life and had the chance to, to get scarred and get a bit dusty mm. and you know through, through, through success mm. and failure and talk to them about how you put life together. Mm. But it helps if you've, if you've done that. I never did that thinking because I didn't know to do that thinking. No one ever mm. talked to me about that mm. thinking. Life has been like, like, what's my next opportunity? Is there an opportunity? Oh, I don't know what I'm doing myself. And and some of my life has actually been lived almost in a desperate fear, you know, a desperate fear of not fulfilling my potential mm. rather than a positive yep. movement of development towards some, some great goal. And that's mm. not, that hasn't been a healthy way to live all the time. Mm. I think it's amazing that you can have two outcomes which are identical, but the ways that you got to them, one is driven by fear and the other is driven by like, how can I you know, excel and develop in myself. And from what you were saying, you know, I think it's so important to have this sense of direction, even if it changes, because if you have a plan and you go somewhere and you decide it's the wrong place, well, you still move forward. Yeah. And I think the worst thing is when you don't have a plan and you sort of just sort of float around in circles, well, actually, it sort of doesn't matter if you make the wrong plan and, you know, you go into, you go down some line of career, which you find that you actually don't like mm. at all. Actually, that's a really useful realisation and you'll still pick up skills yeah. from that. And that allows you to then move in a different direction, which is going to be a probably, hopefully, a one that will work for you better. Yeah. Failure is part of life. I say to young people in the programme, you know, if you're going to have aspiration, buckle up because failure is coming. By yeah. definition, you're trying to go more, you're trying to be more than you are today. Failure is going to be a normal part of that and you're going to make a plan and that plan will lead you at some point to failure. That's okay. You know what? You get up, you start again. Uh, so yeah I, I, I might even suggest I wish I, what I had done when I was younger is read more biographies read mm. more about other people's lives I just read Trevor Noah's biography Born a Crime I think it's actually a brilliant book mm. just insights into people what they've experienced how mm. they've seen the world so read other people's life stories mm. massively significant yes failure is coming but that's okay thank you Marvin and on the way to success let's hope for everyone listening to this podcast thank you so much for this conversation at the end of each conversation i ask each of my guests what are the the place the piece of music and the book that have either been very significant or you know, very important to you in your life yeah. so i'm wondering where where has been a place that has great significance for you that's a really hard question. To, 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 Don't feel there's a right answer. All right. Okay. A place. I'm going to go big here. Go on. Um, so I had an amazing opportunity in 1990 to go to the Arctic. I went to Spitsbergen. Wow. With the British Exploring Society that mm. I'm now president of, actually. Oh. And I sat on a mountain at midnight while the sun went around. It was a 24-hour sun uh, with three friends. And we all faced in different directions. And I looked down and I could see a crevasse. And I thought to myself, if I fall down that crevasse, no one will ever see me again. And it's in that moment of knowing just how fragile and small and insignificant mm. my life was, that I felt most significant. I realized I was alive. Mm. Um, so I found my significance in my insignificance. Uh, wow. So that, that mountain in Spitsbergen, massive for me. And what's your favorite or one of a very significant piece of music for you? I like, if I choose, I like What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. it's just a basic question it's an amazing uh, just an amazing piece of music too and your uh, book that's left a big impact on you can I take a piece of writing rather than a book yes of Is course you right? can yeah absolutely a, a Time to Break the Silence by Martin Luther King um is is a speech he gave on the 4th of April 67 a year to the day before he was assassinated and in that speech he called out US foreign policy, but he also called out spirituality and he talked about the triple evils at the heart of American society. When I was in Washington, I worked with a man called Emery Searcy, who's a black Baptist minister from Atlanta who knew the King family. And Emery said to me, that was a speech that signed King's death warrant. It's a must read. I'm going to read it. Mm. Um, Marvin, thank you so much for your time for taking it out of your busy schedule. I really, really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating conversation, also one that um, has made me examine some of my ideas about how easy it is to talk about opportunities and mm. 
the some of those opportunities I had that I take for granted. But thank you so much for sharing your time and thoughts. No problem. And that was my conversation with Marvin Rees. I've actually just listened to it again whilst I've been out riding the tandem. And three things that I got from this conversation were the importance of Marvin's environment, being told at school that he wasn't good enough, and then having the teachers who did believe in him, and then when he was at Yale, being surrounded by people who were dreaming big, and Marvin also realizing there is absolutely no reason why I cannot dream big either. I also thought it was really interesting what Marvin said about leadership, that as a leader you shouldn't be the one who's trying to show off and show just how great you are. You give the map to the person who's best at map reading, you give the heaviest pack to the person who is the strongest. Actually, as a leader you try and enable all the people who are best suited to a particular role just to get on with it and do that effectively. One more thing I'm going to take away from my conversation with Marvin is that if you can overcome challenges, it gives you that ammunition, that fuel for later. It's going to make you much better prepared to deal with challenges that come later down the line. I want to say a big thank you again to Marvin Rees for his time and to you for yours. I really hope that you enjoyed this conversation, you got something from it, and I would love to know what struck you the most. Until next week, goodbye.